This episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you in part by Indiegogo. What do Project for Awesome, the world's most compact e-vehicle, and a baby have in common? They've all been crowdfunded on Indiegogo. Indiegogo has hosted over 100,000 campaigns since 2008 and distributes millions of dollars every week around the globe. There's no application process or waiting period before you start a campaign so you can start raising funds immediately. Listeners, visit tnd.indiegogo.com to receive a 25% discount on fees. We're also sponsored this week by FinbergCPA.com. Your job is to make what you do the best you can. It's Abraham Finberg's job to make your life tax and accounting worry-free. From dealing with those pesky 1099Ks to complex accounting needs, you can go to FinbergCPA.com, that's F-I-N-B-E-R-G-C-P-A.com, for all your financial support. FinbergCPA.com offers services from phone consultation up to outsourcing your whole internal accounting office. Go to FinbergCPA.com and use the promotion code DISRUPT for a free phone consultation. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit Patreon.com slash New Disruptors, where you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this week to patrons Greg Hayes, Neil Richler, and Abraham Finberg. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that plays back at a continuous 24 frames per second. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, and you might also like The Sword and Laser. It's a science fiction and fantasy-themed book club podcast that's hosted by Veronica Belmont and Tom Merritt. They're building a community around science fiction and fantasy, and they get together to talk about and enjoy books in both genres. You can find us all at boingboing.net. Dave Kellett is the creator and cartoonist for two webcomic titles, Sheldon and Drive, and he's also the co-author of How to Make Webcomics. Fred Schroeder is a veteran cinematographer nominated for Best Cinematography at Sundance for his work on Four Sheets to the Wind and is a longtime maker of commercials. The two of them came together to make the movie Stripped, which is a full-length documentary not about what you might think, but rather about the world's best cartoonists. Get your minds out of the gutter. This is about... The art of the comic strip and the people who make it, the past, the present, and the scary but potential-filled future. And I have Dave and Fred on the line. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Glenn. It's a delight because, as you guys know, we've talked on and off for quite a while now. It's like I'm a, a huge fan of the medium. I've loved comic strips since I was a tiny kid. And I never – you know, comic books went and came and went. Comic strips I never lost the interest in. Dave, you actually draw two comics. What's your start with them? Did you start as a child scribbling away in in books, or did that come later? Uh, It was definitely a childhood love. I actually found from a recent moving house, I I found uh, my third-grade cartoons that were kept in a spiral-bound notebook, which is kind of fun if you're a professional cartoonist to find the first sort of scribblings. And uh, so, yeah, it's been going well uh, from elementary school days, but didn't pick up professionally until probably the uh, 2000, 2001. I had been, as as everyone did in my generation, I had always been shooting for newspaper syndication, which was the brass ring. You know, that was the, that was what you were shooting for to make a living in comic strips. And 
in the meantime, sort of as an interim thing, I was sharing them online. And as we all do when we share things online, we find that, oh, it's no longer just the 30 friends and family reading it. Now, wait a minute, it's 500 people. Now it's 1,000 people. Now it's 10,000 people. And pretty soon, by around 2005, 2006, I was making about 60% of my professional income from my cartooning. I was a, a toy designer at Mattel Toys and uh, did some writing for them as well. But anyway, around 2006, I, my wife and I had a chat and decided to take a plunge to make it my sole profession. And uh, so since, I think, late 2006, early 2007, I've been working uh, entirely online with Sheldon and then more recently with my sci-fi strip, Drive. And uh, so I, the, the beautiful thing about uh, as being a web cartoonist is that there is... As you know, no intermediaries. There's nobody giving me notes. There's no publisher. There's no editor. So even though both of my strips are, are tend towards family-friendly and all-ages material, it's, it's a joy-filled job because I have no one telling me what to do or what not to do. And my success or, or failure is my own. So I love it. <laughs> That's right. That's the, the upside and the downside, the success. Or failure is your and own. failure, no. yeah, yeah. And it's worth noting. The worth noting because I've had my I've had my share of licks, you know. But so yeah, the the failure is also mine to own. So that's all right. We, we can talk about failure. Sometimes been afraid to talk about failure, but no. This but this this is all this is about success. Well, so you're in that first kind of big. I want to say the big wave. There are a lot of people who started up web comics in this sort of I don't know 2001 to 2005 time frame. Some a little bit earlier, but there was kind of a big explosion then. I know there are, there there's certainly. Newer folks who've got underway, but having a, a corpus that dates back eight years can be um, – I mean that's that's great. That gives you both like the depth and you can show people, look, I've been at this. And you've got an audience, I imagine. Have they followed you from uh, the early days? You have people have been reading uh, Sheldon all along? Yeah, from server move to server move kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know what's funny? And I misspoke. I actually started when I was in grad school in England. So it actually first went online in, in 98. Um, late '98, so it's been a good. Long oh my gosh! Was, so you've been doing a, it. So so '98. Yeah, there's. I think there's God. about ten to twenty people online before me sharing yeah. comics. But uh, and and by no means was it a good website in 1998. I mean, let's let's be absolutely clear that I, it looked like. I, in fact, I know I designed it in Microsoft Word, so that tells you my knowledge of HTML uh, in 1998. But uh, yeah, so it's been uh, the people have followed me through, and it's been it's been a lovely relationship that you can get when when it's direct. Our artist to audience, and you know, there's ebbs and flows in terms of success. I have no problem talking about uh, the the tough years, and there are those. But I've, for the most part, have loved how the readership has followed me into ta- you know this project to that project. Been What's great. the mix of of revenue that you use to to is it, is it uh, books and advertising, or or you get do- donation support for it as well? Yeah, so it varies from uh, webcomic to webcomic. For me, there's kind of three or four main uh, income streams. Uh, the big one is book sales, and that's direct to consumer. I have one assistant who helps me with fulfillment, and then I also do T-shirts and books through a company called Topatico mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, and they're lovely people. And then I also do. I have a little a, a little code underneath my strips that. Uh, when the strip first goes up, the original art is for sale. And then once that single strip is sold, then you can the, the code changes and you can then buy a print of the strip. And so that's probably a third of my oh income. Oh, my goodness. So that's, I'd love to break that out because I've, I know the other artists, uh, cartoonists and illustrators, I know I've done something like that. That sounds like a really um, – that must be a long-running plan and something that you've got automated to happen. Do you have other – is Topatico fulfill that part for you as well? 
No, I actually do the. Mm. Uh, I, I there's a certain uh, personal touch to when someone mm-hmm. buys an original. So I do the fulfillment of the originals, and then Topatico, yeah, as you guessed, does the prints. Yes. So um, the code sort of changes. It sends the the sale of the original towards me, and it sales sends the sale of the print to Topatico. But that's great. So that's oh, that's oh. so you have the immediate conversion where you can go from one to the other. Um, that that seems neat. So uh, I'm curious how automated that is. Is it something where someone oh, it's someone makes the purchase yeah. and it flips over for you? Um, exactly, and um, and the code basically just acknowledges the sale and then swaps it over to a print sale. And what's nice is there's a certain I don't want to say competitiveness, but I can't think of a better word. There's a competitiveness towards being the person to get the original. So because it says purchased once it's once it's gone, and I get a lot of emails when it's a particularly good strip, like oh I woke up five minutes too late, or oh that went up you know when I was asleep and I didn't even have a chance. And so that's a fun little thing for for readers to uh, to try to get the original, the one they really love. But yeah, that's so that's about a third of my income. And then of course there's the standards. I, I do have um, uh, advertising around the site, and then do a couple comic cons every year, and that's uh, sort of an extension of book sales and original art sales. So that's in a nutshell. That's my without getting too far down the the tale of income. That's that's the main earner. No, well, me. it's it's fascinating because it's always that you know what things can you do where you have to be directly involved and and every day you've got to produce something and income comes from that and what happens while you sleep and that split and the way that you can move more things to while you sleep I think lets you sleep longer too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, anytime I can automate something on the site, is, uh, it's, it's like the skies open up and you're like, oh, okay, fa- fantastic. I don't have to think about that anymore. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, so let, let's turn to your, your collaborator here, Frank, because we'll we're going to get to the movie, but I want to – we're setting the – this is the origin story, as you have to do with all comics uh, – where everyone came from. So, so Fred, I know that you've been a cinematographer for, uh, you were saying before the podcast, for about 16 years in this business. And that's a, you know, I know a very uh, particular field. Did you, is that a, are you a, a USC graduate? I know so many people, like so many people, and a lot of people I talked to, it turns out, even if they aren't filmmakers now, came out of there. Or did you pick this up as a, as a profession from, on the basis of other interests? Well, no, I uh, loved filmmaking, you know, since I was, you know, maybe, 12 or 13 years old. And so I went to film school at uh, Loyola Marymount mm, University. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I met Dave's wife, Gloria Calderon Kellett, who um, uh, we did uh, theater together. And, you know, so that's how I knew about Dave and everything like that. But the first thing I sort of did when I was 19, I did um, crime scene photography for, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, for the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. That was like my summer job, which was a bit too... Uh, it's interesting that I ended up in documentary, but as it was a bit too much <laughs> realism for me and, you know, led me into more, um, I guess, frivolous uh, pursuits in, st- in terms of doing commercials and, and films and, and that sort of thing. So I had a production company that I started with a couple friends right out of film school. We, uh, My final film was actually a, a television commercial that I, I was paid to produce for a hospital back in Kansas City. And that led me to doing commercials for several years right out of school. So I've only I've really only done that in terms of making a living. It's just been cinematography and filmmaking. And that led me to wanting to do more. I think unlike Dave, you know, my field is truly collaborative 100% of the time. You know, it's it's very difficult to make a movie all by yourself. 
So you always need a collaborator, you know, whereas a comic is a very singular vision, I think, most of the time, which is unusual for any art form. I was thinking also cinematography, as uh, I know from other filmmakers and cinematographers I know, your profession, you get paid. Other people often have gone out and raised the money and they hire you or even if you're involved there in a lot of films i know you have a producer who is the you know the money uh, tree shaker and so forth so there's a difference there that you may not be wrestling up the money to pay yourself that you're actually getting you know you have a you have a fee that's part of the project you're working on yeah i mean it's sort of like being a a contractor in a in a in a sense you're you're hired to contract and then hire you know your crew be- below you and you know there's a lot of moving parts in that um so it is there is a, a freelance aspect in sort of your hustling jobs and negotiating your rate um but it's not a sort of direct to consumer um interface the way that web comics or a lot of entrepreneurial pursuits would be creatively online you know it's not like i'm selling a record you know or an album directly to my fans or something like that. It's more like I'm helping to produce a creative work with a director and a producer, a lot of times as a cinematographer, which can get a little frustrating in terms of having your own voice come through, you know, which is what led me to want to do this project with Dave. You know, originally I approached him to uh, do a documentary about visiting an artist's studios. And, you know, I was going to visit like a sculptor and a, a painter and a cartoonist and all, you know, see how their working spaces differed and how similar they were. And Dave came back and said, you know, this sounds great. I'd love to help you out with it because we're friends. Um, But have you thought about just focusing on cartoonists? Because I think that's fascinating. And, you know, I think they'd have a lot to say in, in a film. And so we had sort of a long lunch talking about that and discussing where the movie could go and, you know, I thought it was a great idea because I love comics and have been a lifelong comics fan. And uh, we sort of discovered, you know, there hasn't been a movie about this subject. You know, we we would love to see a movie like this. So maybe we just have to make it ourselves. Well, I was going to say, too, is so this was um, what what year was this? this was 2009, 2010? Uh, probably late 2009, we had the conversation and started work in 2010. And you figure yeah. two years, Fred, your experience in this industry, you're like, two years will be done. This is a two-year project, and we'll be all finished. <laughs> yeah, I was super optimistic about it. Like, yeah, we can just turn this out in maybe you know a year and a half, and we'll be done. And four years, four years later, here we well, are. Well, it's, it's 2000. <laughs> right, so f- five years from a conversation to a to a film. But I, I thought this is. Um, the scope of this thing, it started in that sort of modest way, and you guys possessed all the, the skills you needed to make it happen. And it seems to me you didn't have feature creep, but you had scope creep because people are so ecstatic about this at every stage. Your kicks, you did two Kickstarters, which we'll talk about in some depth. Um, the participation from artists, the participation from estates and studios. Uh, it seems to me that if you had set out your original goal, it would have been modest, but that you were taking advantage of the focus and interest. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, we really, we started out making a, I think a very personal movie just for us, you know, this was just what we were interested in. And so we didn't know if anybody else would want to watch it, frankly, at the end of the day. So we shot for maybe a year or so and, you know, had spent, you know, not an insignificant amount of money doing that. 
And that's when we turned to Kickstarter. And that's really where we found out that a lot of people wanted to see this movie and wanted to see more of the movie and that there was more of an interest than just um, two bearded, pasty-faced guys. <laughs> you know, um, uh, There were a lot of bearded, pasty-faced guys out there, I guess. <laughs> but you kind of, but your um, Kickstarter, I think, spelled out the ambition you had, too, is you were trying to raise a fair amount of money. The first one in 2011 – uh, was uh, your goal was fifty eight grand and you raised almost uh, or you raised more than twice that. But you had these great step goals. So it was we can produce something that's great. But if we can do this, we can have better sound mastering. We can add animation. We can. You had things that you layered up on top of it. And people said, "Great, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that." Yeah, and I think that's a good way in general to to run a Kickstarter is you you lay out as clear as possible like. Uh, Here's what we can do if we have an extra five thousand. Here's what we can do if we have an extra ten thousand. And I think, like Fred was hinting at, this film would have been similar. The final product would have been similar had it just been the two of us and our own financing. But it would have been so much smaller and quieter mm-hmm. um, in, in final scope. And so what we were able to do with Kickstarter was say, look, here's what it costs to take it to one of the better sound studios in LA and and clean up as best we can the sound. Here's what it costs to take it to color correction in LA. And here's what it costs to add closed captioning. And here's what it costs to do X, Y, Z. And what's nice is different people could sort of vote with their five or $10 on, on what they uh, believed in. And thankfully word spread very quickly on the project and, and a lot of people stepped forward and helped us out. And uh, it was lovely. It was lovely to see. Well, and it's a, it says smaller and quieter maybe. And it's um like, how many interviews did you do for this film in the end? You did like a hundred interviews, right? Like it's funny because we were looking at the math the other day. We have, depending on how we counted up, we either ended up with seventy-seven or or oh ninety. I don't remember, but so it's let's just say it's in that ballpark. Yeah, because um, a lot a lot of them were like two people at the same time, kind of right. interview, you know, taking advantage right. of stuff. Um, so like we would go and, and interview two comics professors, say at SCAD in Savannah, and so we right. would sit down with two or three at a time, and so. I, that's where our math got a little fuzzy. We'd have to go back and look. But anyway, the, but it was it was a lot of interviews, and all the conversations were great, which was a, a, a joy in the film. I mean, it probably that was probably our favorite, wouldn't you say, Fred? Part of the filmmaking process was just sitting down and talking comics with people for two, three hours at a time was delightful. It was it was fantastic. Well, I've seen the movie now. I saw you guys very nicely. You gave me a screener code, and we can talk about how you're delivering this too. So I was able to watch it online via VHX. We can talk about that in a bit. But um, and I've yep. seen it, and it like I can see in some shots the different times of day, and I'm like, oh, they were there for five, six hours with so and so. I know they're set up even with one camera. I know, and maybe some of these were. Did you do any two camera shots? Or was it all one camera? It was all okay. one camera. We tried to make it. You know, tried to fit everything, all the gear in basically a backpack and a oh, carry-on piece of because luggage. Because that dramatically, you know? you'd add like $1,000 to a trip if you had to start checking stuff. And <laughs> Exactly. Right. And at first, it was like super bare bones. And that was the fortunate thing about, you know, the fact that I'd been a working cinematographer for 16 years or so was that I kind of knew what you could get away with <laughs> in terms of gear you know, it was, it wasn't me, you know, I wasn't going out to somebody else who was saying, well, you need, you know, this piece of equipment that costs a thousand dollars. You know, I knew what you could get away with, um, to make a, a documentary for, you know, as cheap as possible, but still have it be quality, you know? So we shot it all on a, you know, a DSLR camera, a Canon 5D, a single camera. And, uh, you know, that made it, it made it challenging in the edit for sure. 
sometimes because it would have been nice to be able to cut away and have another angle sometimes. But I think for the freedom that it allowed us, you know, to go into smaller studios and people's houses and travel around up to Canada and over to Indiana and up to Portland and all different places, it just made it a much more uh, fluid doc. You know, I think documentaries are so, so tied to the technology in filmmaking. You see real shifts in the style of documentaries as the the technology that you can capture something changes. You know, the 60s direct cinema documentaries. I don't know if you've seen like Salesman or mm. any of those. You know, as soon as you could have a 16 millimeter oh, camera yeah. that you can like walk around with, it sort of changed what you could do. You no longer have these like really stilted docs. You know, you could actually follow, you know, John F. Kennedy in a car, you know, as he's going around on the campaign trail and, and things like that. If you stuck with the same camera for consistency through the whole, all the shooting, just so you would have the same kind of footage to work with. Yes. Yeah. I can think of only one shot where we had one other camera, um, for basically a quick time lapse. Remember that shot, Fred? Yeah. But yeah. For, for, for oh, yeah. every other shot of the 300 plus hours of footage, it was on the Canon 5D. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I've heard because matching could be an issue or, or whatever, and you have wanted to have the same look through the whole film, didn't want to give people any kind of visual inconsistency. Yeah, it just is easier workflow-wise, and it, it we didn't know how much we would be doing ourselves, you know, in post. And it's um, considerably cuts down on the headaches if you can just stick with one format, one camera, one setting in terms of, you know, color timing and just issues with workflow, uh, which can be a nightmare, uh, especially with all these new cameras that can shoot, you know, 4K and RAW oh, yeah. and all this stuff. You know, it starts to, like, your hard drive space goes out the window. <laughs> Let me take a break so I can tell you about one of this week's sponsors, Creative VIP. Now, if you're a creative professional writer or designer, this is an exclusive membership club for you. It's designed around the kinds of things that you use routinely and need, as well as a little bit of fun. You get a bunch of discounts for starters. Discounts on services from Media Temple, Squarespace, FontDeck, Verb, Name.com, along with dozens of other companies. And you'll also save on apps that you can use, like Text Expander, LaunchBar, and Backblaze. Along with the discounts, you also get access to a growing library of graphics, vectors, icons, and themes. And if you sign up for the goodie bag option, you'll get on your doorstep classy gear from Moleskin, Field Notes, SanDisk, and many more companies. I've got a goodie bag sitting on my bedside full of pens and notebooks and things that let me sketch and, and make ideas, but it also included a tiny, tiny little USB stick so that I can take those ideas with me after I've scanned them in. Now, as a listener of The New Disruptors, you can save 25% on your membership forever. Creative VIP would love to welcome you as a member, so take a look at creativevip.net slash disrupt to get that 25% lifetime membership discount. And now, back to our podcast. In having recorded all these interviews, I mean, this is the, boy, this is the crazy part of the modern age, is you've got... Hundred, several hundred hours of footage. That yeah, we have yeah. we have about three hundred hours, yeah, I think. Because I'm looking, I was thinking about the number, and so um, you know, there's some people who are on camera, and I'm like, there's a quote or two from them, a little snippet, and I'm like, oh my god, I know that that was 
two, you know, for travel plus maybe two to five hours with that person. And we saw 10 seconds because that's what fit into the narrative. That's what fit in the storytelling. But you've got this yeah. opening available because you have infinite storage of the internet and infinite interest in the subject. Like, I, I mean, I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit, but what are your, I, I know you'd made some plans, but what are your general plans of all the footage that, that doesn't get used? What do you, what do you want to do with that? Well, we're going to do two things with it. Um, so firstly, as a, I, I have two grad school degrees in the history of cartooning, so it's important to me that it all gets saved. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be donating it to Ohio State. They have a, a beautiful Billy Ireland Cartoon Museum and Library. Yes. And, and they hold all of, uh, for example, Watterson's art and, and dozens of other you know, 20th century cartoonists. So we'll be donating it to them for permanent storage. And then secondly... And this is the more exciting part is the 13-year-old kid in me and in so many other 13-year-old kids and everyone else would love to sit down and dive deep into these interviews. And, you know, I know that I, no matter what the age, would love to watch a two-hour interview with Jim Davis of Garfield oh, yeah. or, uh, or hear in depth from Jeff Keene of Family Circus or this or that. So what we're going to do is VHX offers a unique ability to not offer not only the film – but sort of packages, uh, and so for for podcast prices, we're going to have full interviews, very lightly edited, just to get out any ums or ahs or any you know pops in the microphone. The full interviews with as many cartoonists as we have time to to make available. So that'll be exciting, I think, for people that really want to dive deep. And uh, I imagine that'll be at least a few thousand people out in the world. I'll, and I'll, we'll come back to VHX in a moment too, because I want to talk about them as a platform and, and how that's helped you and been part of what you do. I realize I got you know I said a brief introduction was about at the outset we've talked about it a little bit but we should actually talk about what the film is about because i realized so when we're <laughs> recording this we're a couple weeks away from release and the the backers will have already by the time people hear this backers of the project will already have gotten uh, most people have gotten some are will have been able to get a digital download if that was what they backed for they'll be able to see the film and the general public april 1st is the delivery date first on itunes and then on other platforms so if you're hearing this and it's before april 1st well, we'll come, we'll come to that, but there's a good goal you guys are sitting there. So the film, which I've seen, and many backers, some of whom are listed have seen, and many people will have not when this airs, it's not just – you talked about it maybe being a smaller, quieter film, right? Come back to that if you hadn't gone through the funding stages and, and had all this participation. You have 70, 80, 90 interviews. The thing that was amazing to me is the scope of the thing. I kept – thinking, okay, so well, now we're getting winding up like, oh, no, wait, this is the next part. We haven't even talked about the future of cartooning. So lay out what the scope of this – it's almost two hours, right? Your hour and 50? Is that right? Hour 40? I think we're 85 minutes, 85 minutes. So is, our, is our running almost time Almost the Woody Allen length, right? So Yeah, which is – I mean I, that's what I prefer. I prefer it shorter the better because <laughs> I get bored easily. <laughs> no, but it's great. It, but, it doesn't – it goes by fast because there's so much to, to cover. So, so set out the scope of the film as you wound up making it. Well, so the movie stripped, it's ended up being sort of this love letter to, to comics, to comic strip – and the art of being a cartoonist, um, you know, we give a sense of the history of it, and then also where it's going and the future of, of cartooning, and just what it means to be a creative person. I think in the 21st century with the internet and um, as a communication tool, and I think cartooning stands in for for music, for film, for any creative endeavor, and how you can do that. Um, day-to-day, the day-to-day process of being a creative person um, in the age of this amazing 
um, tool that that we call the internet. Um, and so we sat down with, you know, as we said, close to 90 cartoonists, and we visited their studios and really talked to them in depth about their art form. And I, I won't list them off because people can go to strippedfilm.com to get the full scoop and information. They can look at your Kickstarter campaigns for some lists too here. But you've got everybody in the industry to talk to you just about. I mean, you've got um, – we could start at the top as Bill Watterson did an audio interview for you. And I remember you unveiling that at XOXO 2013. You played the audio or some of the audio and everyone was sort of flabbergasted and it was fantastic. How did you get – Watterson to get involved in this because he's you know he's seen as a hermit. I know he's loved, he's living a private life. He's seen as unapproachable, but he seemed to be wanted, wanted to be part of this. Yeah, and it was uh, it was really lovely of him. I, the honest to god truth is because I I, I don't want to give any power to Fred and I about how mm-hmm. he kindly agreed. It was five percent us asking him and ninety five percent him being an incredibly kind human oh, being. That's great. And um, I think. You know, if 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 we're looking for a causality, we had in, done about fifteen, twenty, twenty-five interviews at this point, and I think word had sort of reached back to him through mutual friends that here were two guys that were passionate about comics and weren't trying to do some sort of bang zoom comics aren't for kid anymore movie. We were trying to take a serious and heartfelt and in-depth look at comics, and I think you know he's well known for being passionate about comics as an art form and, and their potential and their beauty. And so uh, we wrote him a, a, a lovely little one-page letter and passed it along through, you know, known channels. And um, lo and behold, a few weeks later, we got an email back from him just as we were boarding a flight to go to Canada to interview Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse. And right as we're boarding on the flight, I, I, I started squealing like a 10-year-old boy <laughs> because here's, here's an email from him, and, and he's delightful in the email. And, and by the way, there's a part of me that I was like, wow, Bill Waterson used exactly. his email, which, it seems so, which seems so ridiculous now. Of course he uses email. We've emailed him hundreds of times. But um, when we forgot that first email, I don't know what I expected because Calvin and Hobbes you know, has that certain, sort of out-of-time feel – that it could have been in the 50s, it could have been in the 70s, it could have been in the 90s. And so you sort of are a little uh, taken aback when you get an email from him. But anyway, a very kind email from him saying that he'd uh, take part. And uh, at first it was written answers, and we were doing our best to incorporate that into the film. And so I emailed him back and I said, hey, Bill, here's three or four options as to how we could do it, which is the least offensive to you. We could, you know, we don't want to make it a Star Wars scroll of text <laughs> up the screen, but, but how can we, how can we <laughs> incorporate this best? And he emailed back suggesting something we had first suggested a long time ago, but he very kindly picked up on was, hey, why don't I just do an audio recording of my answers and you can overlay my strips on. on oh, that's there. great. So you sent him some gear? You've, you've... Yeah, so we very quickly said yes. And Fred and I that night basically recorded uh, a how-to DVD that we mailed along with a um, a Zoom you know, external audio recorder, a sort of standalone multi-directional audio recorder. And uh, he very kindly uh, set it on his table and took the time to record the answers and sent it back. And, uh, and it was lovely of him. It was really a generous act of him to do. And I think he had some things to say about comics. And it, it turned out to be some wonderful and surprising things about comics in the film. It's, so it's great. We could not be more thankful to him. Well, his participation, I mean, it's, you know, I know there's a symbolic value to it, of course. It's like, you know, the, he, he doesn't talk in public, really, and he did. And so that there's a symbolic value, which is nice. There's the support and morale value. Like, we're doing something good because one of the finest artists in this field 
wants to be involved with what we're doing. And then, of course, nicely, what he said was really interesting. I mean, I think it fit very well in the film, and it, it deepened because he'd left. I mean, there's that power of walking away. Because he left, oh, you know, yeah. that, and especially, like, here's the thing that I think is great about your film. There's a lot of things I think are great. <laughs> I've already felt about it. Oh, thank you. And I will oh, continue to tell people how great this film is. You can't stop me. One of the things that's great is you don't sugarcoat it. I was trying to describe this to a, to a friend. I said, oh, you know, I saw the, I saw the screener of it, and uh, you're really honest, and, and, he, and he's part of that, but you're really honest about how difficult it is to be a cartoonist and make a living and like, don't cry for us because we're doing what we love, but the mechanics of the sausage making factory and um, even the issues about syndication, which can be fraught, the syndicates, you know, they don't view themselves as saviors necessarily, but there are great people. I've had some wonderful conversations as a reporter over the years with people in different syndicates and, and the syndicates have a, a really critical role in the infrastructure, but they also take a lot of money. And I thought you portrayed that issue of newspaper syndication, like in an incredibly fair way, like both sides got a bitch and praise each other in what felt like the most complete explanation I've seen. And I think even in a way that a lay person would understand without having to be inside the industry and, and explain why syndication was so important for so long and why it, it sort of ebbed as an issue too. Oh, well, thank you for that. That's, that means a lot to us. Um, that's a, that was probably the most delicate road we tried to walk in how we portrayed both that argument for and against both uh, digital distribution and traditional print syndication distribution. And so I'm glad that worked for you. But the, the, uh, the nice thing was we tried to make a film that was both inside baseball for people that really love comics and yet something that your or my mom or uh, you know a cousin that doesn't really like comics could also relate to uh, as a complete story of how comics work as a business and as an art form because we thought that you know if if we can communicate to the people in our lives that don't particularly love comics but are interested how this works then we've done our job so i'm glad to hear that that worked for you that's great it also is really important just to delve into what it means to the nuts and bolts of being a creative person, which is something I, I, there's a lot of documentaries. There's a lot of, you know, like how to break into web comics or how to break into filmmaking, but there's not a lot of material that focuses on the, what it means day to day to be creative, like how that works. And so that was what we wanted, you know, was an important thing that we wanted to focus on was the realities because I remember reading, you know, as a kid, you know, how to make comic books and all that kind of stuff, because I, you know, dreamed of being, you know, a comics artist and that kind of stuff. And they never sort of talk about the realities of the day-to-day of, you know, what it means day after day to go into a studio and, and make a comic or what it means, you know, day after day to go in and, and be a filmmaker, you know. And so that's, I, I think, an important part that the movie touches on and, and I think will resonate with a lot of creative people, I hope. Yeah. And what's nice is when, when we were recording the score for, for the film, Stefan Lassard of Dave Matthews Band did a, a, a really lovely score for the film and, uh, and is a, himself a fan of comics, which is sort of how it came about. But when we were, we were recording in a, one of the better uh, and more famous uh, places in, in Los Angeles to record, and Liz Fair was recording oh. in the studio right next to us, and she came over to say hi and started watching the film. <laughs> and to build on Fred's point, what was really nice is Liz was like, wow, this exactly speaks to what's happening in the music industry mm. and what's happening in my own career. And this is amazing. I want to watch this film. And we've heard the same thing from we, – we showed it at Blizzard, the makers of uh, World of Warcraft, yeah. and, and they said the same thing. This is, this is a very similar thing to what's happening in gaming. 
And when we showed it at Pixar, they, they, they said the same thing. Well, this is really similar to what's happening in film and in animation. And, and uh, so I think uh, what we try to do is make this film, the story of comics, a microcosm for the bigger changes in, for what's happening on a lot of platforms and a lot of medias and a lot of art forms. And uh, thankfully, I think that works all right in the film. No, I think you tell a great meta story, which is the, 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 the meta story, or I guess like the, the specific narrative I mean, the meta story is how you're actually distributing this yourself, which we'll, we're going to get to. And the the like bigger narrative that you're telling through this film, oh, gosh, I was just thinking about it. it's wonderful because you have a great story to tell. Then you have the story that's an analogy. Then you have the meta story. It's pretty good. But the the bigger story is like so. There's it used to be very like there was a reason to have middlemen at a point at which it was very difficult to do things in atomic form, like to distribute comics. You had a you know you drew on a board and you had to get it through the post to uh, you know your syndicate six weeks ahead of time. Then they had to do duplication of it, a great expense, and then get it dispatched to newspapers around the country in bundles. And the newspapers, I mean, you know, you tell the story in the movie, but it's it seems completely ridiculous. And even in the late 90s, that had changed dramatically, the distribution and scanning and so forth. The huge change had happened even before newspapers started to collapse as a, as a, a business. But, you know, that whole model has changed for so many industries, but the intermediaries persisted. And I think the the syndicates are a perfect example of like the most benign possible intermediary because intermediaries can act both as gatekeepers that prevent people who should have entry, but also as as a way to ensure that the people in the system actually can make a living like a guild, right? So the syndicates, you have some wonderful stuff in there about the cartoonists saying, you know, look, these guys had to go door to door and knock on newspaper editors. That's all they do. They travel around. They're still doing it and knocking on the door and trying to get new strips in there. And this paper space is shrinking. There's fewer and fewer cartoons. There's fewer cartoonists practicing in this way. And I think you convey like the difficulty that we often don't see of what it meant to be an intermediary when that was a necessary role. Well, we have a we have a great interview with uh, Scott McCloud in there who talks about how the new incarnation of technology immediately makes the previous incarnation look barbaric. <laughs> and I think it's yeah. really true in almost all forms of, of media. You know, When you think about how comics used to be made even physically with taking it to a printing press, you know, all that stuff just seems so archaic now that – you have Photoshop and a scanner, you know, and and that I think also applies to, you know, these guys in tweed suits driving around, uh, you know, selling your strip to these newspapers that are are fading very very rapidly, you know. Let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about Media Temple, one of this week's sponsors. Now, you may think you know everything about Media Temple because I've been talking about them for weeks. But wait, there's two new managed hosting plans I'll tell you about in a moment, along with a discount code for New Disruptors listeners. So you may already know about Media Temple's grid service. This is the web hosting choice for more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. You can host a single portfolio site or a hundred different client projects. And the way it's set up, you don't have to do anything to keep your site up under huge traffic. Hundreds of servers are working together in the cloud to keep your sites online. You get a single unified control panel. It's backed by their 24 by 7 live support. Grid service comes with 100 gigabytes of storage and one terabyte of monthly bandwidth. I still am always amazed when I say that. Such a huge amount of bandwidth for most of our purposes. You can also get one-click install for WordPress. 
Grid Web Hosting now comes with SSDs. This will load your sites up to 50% faster. And if you need a virtual private server, they have solutions with their DV developer and DV managed hosting plans. So here's what you may not know about are the two new managed hosting plans from Media Temple. One of them is Managed WordPress Hosting. It comes with unlimited bandwidth and it includes three WordPress installs along with integrated email and more. The other is Managed Hosting handled by Media Temple's in-house engineers. You don't do server administration. The cloud tech engineers monitor, optimize, and protect your server 24 hours a day, all year long. Let them manage your hosting. You manage your business. Now, here's the discount I was talking about. Because you are a loyal and faithful New Disruptor listener, you can get 25% off your first month of web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and use the promo code TND, lowercase TND, like the New Disruptors, and get that discount off your first month. MediaTemple.net and code TND. And now let's get back to the podcast. Several of the people you talk to, um, like Kate Beaton, whose work, I mean, I love, actually, it's funny. It's like everybody kept putting people up on screen. Like, oh, I love her work. Oh, I love his work. Oh, I love her work. And, and even the people <laughs> like, I forgot, like, like Kathy, I was, I was always a fan of Kathy and you could own, I'm actually Garfield. I think has gotten better again. Like, I think there was a moribund period in Garfield where it was a little bit like whatever. It's very interesting to see the strips ebb and flow. And that partly goes into that having to produce something every day. But I see Kathy and I'm like, God, I forgot how revolutionary Kathy was in the early days. But so the, you see these later artists like, like Kate Beaton who does Hark a Vagrant and uh, – uh, uh, Well, there's like Matt Inman of The Oatmeal or uh, – Yeah, Scott, Ryan yeah. North from Dinosaur Comics. Uh, P, uh, exactly. P Scott Kurtz of PVP. Yeah. And all these people, they, they were all sort of – I mean I want to say overnight successes, but Kate Beaton is a great example and she talks about it in the film about – you know, she was kind of doing napkin sketches and then I think Tumblr or, or MySpace, some kind of thing like that uh, – posting things on Facebook, and then suddenly I remember almost watching her go from, oh, this is an artist a few people know, to like New York Times bestseller list in the space of like a year and a half or a year or something. It was nuts. And the difference was like when you have a gatekeeper and you had some folks from the from a syndicate talk about this, like they see all the slush comes through. They see everything and they pick what they think is most likely to be commercially successful that they also think is appealing. And then they have to shop it to the audience. It was newspapers and it was less scattershot. Like not every strip would take hold that they picked, of course. And sometimes they turned away great ones, but they sort of understood what their market was. And it was a very uh, huge winnowing, but no one would have ever expected Kate Beaton would become a worldwide success. Yeah, and, and I think that speaks to um, how tricky the, the gatekeeper role was and is for, for any media, you know, whether you're a, a, an editor of novels or a, a sound uh, representative for a, for a record company. I mean, it's tricky to pick, uh, the, you know, the next hit. But what's interesting is when the market decides, it makes its decision very quickly. And, and Kate's a perfect example of that, how you can go almost to zero to 60 in no time at all. And, and you explained that perfectly, how she, within a year and a half, was sort of a time bestseller and, and everybody knew her name. And uh, Well, the joke used to be you were an overnight success after 10 years, and she was an overnight success after, after months. And she went with a conventional publisher in the end. She didn't self-publish the book that got on the New York Times bestseller list. So she was a hybrid of those two as well. Yeah, and and what's uh, what's interesting is there are there's hybrids in both uh, 
directions. Stefan Passas of Pearls Before Swine works with a traditional syndicate, but we talked, and I don't know that this made it in the movie, but we talked about how he loves the syndicate, but how sometimes it's a slow-turning ship to get a bigger company to do certain things. So he has very often gone and just hired his own developer for a Pearls Before Swine app, for example, and then taken it back to the syndicate and, and gone through traditional channels. So both sides of the coin are, are testing out different waters of what works best for them, and I think ultimately that's great for the art form, because there doesn't need to be a single path to the mountain, is one of the major messages of the film. And now, thankfully, there's way more paths that are opening up for cartoonists. Well, it's great, too, because uh, it, it feels like there were there was this stultification in cartoons because it had to be suitable for a general audience if it was going to appear in a newspaper. And even alternative cartoons, there wasn't that much room for them. I mean, even when the alt papers were burgeoning, they could only run a handful of cartoons, even, you know, the Village Voice. Maybe it ran, I don't know, nine or ten, maybe, across the whole issue and it's yeah. thickest and now I mean there's still an issue of quality and finding an audience and competency and being able to draw but you know like Ryan North is a great example I love him because Dinosaur Comics is one of the funniest comics out there and as some listeners will not know it's the same drawings that are like clip art for however many years he's been doing this 10 or 15 years now yeah and yet each one feels unique just by writing alone, which is an interesting sort of psychological thing about the strip. But yeah, Ryan's, Ryan's brilliant, I think, and, and is probably one of the better, better, better writers uh, of our generation for comics. And is someone who would have never have appeared in a newspaper. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like that would not have been a strip that would have been picked up by a syndicate and put into, you know, 20 newspapers, let alone four, 400. But the web, because you have direct access, you know, to your fans into making things go viral allows for you to do almost whatever you want, handle any subject, any way you want it. And, you know, as long as you pay for the web hosting, you can do whatever you want. Right. And that's know. now like, you know, $20 a month or whatever, 10 gets you unlimited bandwidth and, <laughs> and unlimited pages. Yeah, and, yeah. And right. Whatever. Exactly. And, and, you know, one thing that we talk about in the film, uh, and briefly, but uh, it's an interesting topic, is that, you know, different outlets of distribution, sort of different artists rise to the occasion. So when you have traditional syndication, you get your Bill Keens creating Family Circus. And when you have the sort of Haight-Ashbury San Francisco comics of the 60s and 70s, you get your Robert Crumbs. And both of those cartoonists couldn't have switched places and worked in the other one's distribution model. So what's happening with web comics is you get a very different kind of cartoonist, a cartoonist that's willing to wear the 20,000 different yeah. hats and be entrepreneurial. And it's very hard for them to step into a syndicate role, or it's very hard for syndicate cartoonists who are used to creating wonderful work and passing it off to professionals to have to then take on all those hats of webcomics. So it's not a, an easy snap your fingers and you're in a new career kind of model. You, it's, it takes a di very different kind of personality to do these different distribution models. Yeah, this is, I mean, you're, when you're a cartoonist working with a syndicate, you still had to be a small business person, but your main job was artist and there was a little accounting and some, you know, so, you had to talk to a lawyer to sign contracts and there were things right, around the right. side, but like, right, you have, this is, this is running a full business. You are every job and also not just the dishwasher, but the, the programmer. And, and, you know, this is what happened like, uh, in the music side, some of the more techie people, either they found somebody techie or like Jonathan Colton, who was an IT guy. Um, he is an early success in, 
selling himself as a musician over the internet because he could make a site that worked and he could navigate all the embedding and crud you had to do. And you, you see that with like uh, Mike and Jerry from Penny Arcade or some of the folks who were early on the webcomic side, they could figure out, you know, I could do so, you, and you figure this out, obviously, Dave, too, is like, how do I do this HTML? How do I get PayPal linked in? How do I, you know, sell something through Amazon when that became an option uh, and so forth? So you have the techier people come on first, but now I can create a site, you know, you create a site in seconds that would let you be a webcomics, uh, host webcomics without having to build it all from scratch. Right. And that's sort of the ideal is what we're heading into now is is that there's five or six uh, platform tools that a, a younger cartoonist that's in their late teens, early 20s, or frankly, whatever age, if, if they have a passion for it, within a day, <laughs> they can have four or five different systems up and running for themselves, yeah. you know. And none of that existed in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But the fact that it does now means there's a whole, uh, I almost want to say a second, maybe even a third web generation of, of web cartoonists that are coming online that are fantastic. And that technology just empowers them to make their art all that easier. Yeah, the, the distribution model has, has changed dramatically. I think the one thing that's important to point out is to get it out there you still have to be good do you, you know what i mean you still have to <laughs> yes, produce yes. good good work and and do the work you know it, it isn't just um i put it up and you know there it goes and suddenly i'm i'm a successful you know cartoonist or or whatever it you do have to put the work at it and you have to be dedicated to it and really produce good stuff for it to get out there and to be successful which is the part of the equation i think people forget about is that you have to make that commitment that this is this is my profession now. There's a professionalism yeah. that still is inherent there to get the to be successful and to do the good work. It, there's a viral thing too that that's that's the other modern component. So it's not just easier to publish without intermediary. Is that Kate Beaton and folks like her became especially more recently like PVP or Penny Arcade or Dinosaur Comics. They built up their following over years and years and and they had a pretty good ramp up early on because they were they kind of got some early attention but and they get their stuff shared now i don't mean to say that but somebody like kate beaton she rose to prominence because of the crazy multiplying effect that we have from social media and um, my buddy matt Bores, who's a, been a previous guest on this podcast he's an alt editorial cartoonist and his career has gone nuts in the last three years and he has a mixed relationship with what social media is but he did one piece for cnn uh last year that got a hundred thousand shares on facebook how do you i mean the scale of that is so off the the roof you know off the top from anything an alternative editorial cartoonist would ever have had seen before yeah and and i think you might remember this from from xoxo festival is that I think Jack Conti said it was that if you think about that in, in sort of the YouTube shares of oh this has been reviewed a, a million times you're like nah yawn no big deal <laughs> but 100,000 shares if you think about it in that terms of filling a stadium and yeah. you, it, it makes it it makes it all the more real of how many people that is um, so yeah it's an incredibly magnifying effect the, the powers of Tumblr and Twitter and, and Facebook um, and it does make careers faster but like Fred was saying though and this is true with K2 there there are still years and years and yeah. years that go into being ready when opportunity knocks. And so the thing that I always tell younger cartoonists is if you get that one viral strip, that's great. You've become effectively a viral meme, but you have to have the work ready to back up that that viralness when it happens. So it's still years and years and years of work for that overnight success is still kind of a truth. 
if you want to make a career of it, of it I should say. Yeah, I just talked to a, a two fourth grade classes. One of my sons is in fourth grade and about writing. And I was I asked, I was like, so does anybody in the class do you write obsessively? Like, do you just write? And I, you know, they're, they're actually this is a advanced curriculum class. I can say the word obsessive. They know what I mean. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, oh, do you write all the time? Do you write because you need to write? And then a few hands went up, and then a few more tentatively. And I was like, okay. I'm like, this is one of the things that may make you a writer. It doesn't mean you won't be if you don't. But the fact that at your age you feel like you have to write you'll probably feel like that the rest of your life and you probably will need to write. And now you have a way. There's going to be all these different ways that you can publish or communicate your writing, even if it's not professionally. And I feel like the same way, how many people do we know among the three of us who, when they grew up, all they could do is draw. It's always a pen, a pencil in their hand, constantly, constantly, constantly everywhere. And that is constitutes practice. That counts. And some of those people may never have something that other people view as uh, objectively something they want to see, but many will. And then more of those people have the opportunity to then share that and get some response from it than has ever been possible in human history before. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And that's a bit of, that's a bit of what we tried to capture in the film is, is how that changes things for a hundred, 200, 300 year old art form like cartooning. And I think it does. It changes everything dramatically for the art form. Well, I want to dive into a few more of the um, like structural aspects. We'll get into some of the meta story too is, so you did two Kickstarters and one of them was the initial like, Hey, we want to make a film. We've already done a lot of work and we want to kick it up and, you know, produce this thing. And you raised almost 110 grand in 2011 for that. Then 2013, you're like, we're still working on it. We've done so much because this turned out to be so great and we, it's big and you explained it very well and we want some more money, but this was the interesting part. So this one, and you know, I wrote, this is something I round up this when I met you guys, I wound up writing about this for the economist because this wasn't, Oh, we need more money for travel. Uh, our production costs went up being higher. It was, we need money to license the material. What's the issue with licensing material to show in a film? It's very complicated, isn't it? It can be, and it can be kind of a nightmare. <laughs> um, we discovered very quickly, well, making a, a documentary, I, I think, is unlike making a narrative film in that it's very fluid in terms of the story that you're telling throughout the process. You sort of have an idea of what you want to do. Then you start shooting and it transforms that. And then you start editing and it really transforms into something else. And what we discovered is that we really needed to give context to the viewer of where comics came from and how, just how huge they, they were you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, where comics and car- comic creators were real celebrities. You know, they were on Johnny Carson and appearing in movies and on Murder, She Wrote and stuff like that. And so to be able to really communicate that to an audience required us to, you know, license a bunch of footage from um, larger media companies, you know, as well as licensing a lot of comics for from cartoonists and from syndicates to be able to just show that in a, in a, um, a way that was respectful to the to the creator. Can I play dumb here for a second? And because uh, I've you know, as you know, I've investigated this area fully, but listeners may not be uh, may not be versed in in fair use and all and all the rest. But so so let's let me play dumb and say, why do you have to license material? Isn't there something called fair use that lets you use material in a documentary <laughs> context that would let you just show snippets of film and uh, and still images to make the point that you're doing? 
Absolutely. And so the fair, the fair use in copyright law allows for, the, and the idea being that in democracy you have to foster conversation, you have to foster rethinking of ideas and examination of ideas, which I think you and I could agree, and maybe you'd have differences, but that's the underpinning idea besides mm-hmm. for fair use in, in a democracy, um, is that it fosters a, a continuation of ideas and examination of ideas and, and a conversation as a culture. And so the four factors that the copyright asks for fair use to be fair use is that it has to have uh, the nature in which you use it in the copyrighted work, the amount that you use in your copyrighted work, and the effect that it has both upon the, the market for the original copyrighted stuff and for, I think, uh, some judges taking consideration how that artist might further that copyrighted work in other iterations, and then the purpose and the character in which you're using it for. Is it for educational? Is it for profit? Is for... But anyway, those four, those four factors can You've be... You've become a lawyer in this time, haven't you? <laughs> no, t- oh, God, too much, too much. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, this the, this the, is the, the glamorous the... life of filmmaking, oh guys. God, it's okay. researching, yes. uh, you know, copyright law and fair use. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and no, listen, and, and I, I I should say that I am I am in no way stretch or shape an expert on on copyright, no, that was and in good. part that's why as filmmakers we opted for the licensing route because fair use, even though it is absolutely a part of copyright law, has a lot of shades of gray to it, and unfortunately, even even if it were absolutely clear, the threat or possibility of of cease and desist and and impediments to distribution by original copyright holders can really limit what a documentary can well, do. Let me break that out for a second because so the so the point is that uh, you could be totally in the right. You could say uh, – oh, because fair use is not an absolute. It's a test, as you point out. It's a multi-part test. It only gets tested in court. So you can't get pre-clearance by a court or anybody. There's no institution arm of government in this country or I think in any country that says – but in other countries, fair use tests um, – that says, uh, yes, we agree that you cannot have an action brought against you for this use. The only way to test whether you are successful with fair use is if no one sues you or if you're sued and then win in court. Right. And, that's and so with fi- and with film, let's let's say for example it was an essay I was writing and the essay was going to appear in a small magazine that is quickly forgotten. Right? So the the four factors that would be considered would be less destructive to my overall livelihood if if I didn't pass all, one or all of those four factors, right? So that I'd, I'd probably have to retract the story that I used part of the copyright for, you know. And what I'm saying is the stakes are smaller, but with film, the stakes are incredibly high and expensive, and that's the problem as a small filmmaker without an on-staff lawyer ready to defend you uh, and your fair use is that it can be absolutely destructive both to the film and to it getting out to the world to. Complete the film with a fair use material, get it out there, be sued for one thing, and then if you lose the lawsuit, to have to go back oh, into man. your final cut, yeah. modify everything, redo the sound, redo the color, redistribute, and then and then pay reparations. And that can be, you know, multiple times over what it originally would have cost to just license the darn thing. And, and, and not well, just you got the other factor on top of it too is that the theaters actually maintain the places in which you actually project the film they would have their concern about their liability and they have potentially have liability right that's part of the dance of getting into a theater absolutely and so and so copyright holders hold that over the heads of of distributors of like you better not take this film you know that kind of mm-hmm. thing so so it could potentially also 
just the time it could i've seen films that have been held up for years because of this issue because the burden of proof falls on you to prove that it's uh fair use you know so your film could potentially sit on a shelf for two or three years because an injunction is filed against it and so you're just waiting for that you know to be proven false and in the meantime your movie is out of date, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with anything, you know, and right. it's such a loss of opportunity to really get your movie out. To and people. then to, to add an even further wrinkle on it, let's say that we pass all, super clearly we pass all four factors of, of fair use consideration in the U.S. Well, then it gets even more confusing because we're going to be distributing this oh. on iTunes and Google Play and VHX and around the world because we live in a digital era. Well, let's say a few copies get up to Canada or are sold into the UK or into Australia. And even though there's mutual recognition of U.S. copyrights through a lot of uh, democracies around the world, they have you know sort of treaty packs on this, it's not always set in stone. And examples of that in the past could have been Winnie the Pooh or Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. and this or that. And so it, it's a whole other pond of confusion when you start getting into other countries and how it gets out to there. So the better thing that Fred and I just decided is it's, it's miserable and it shouldn't be the case, but we have to get approval to use the material in the film was the bottom line for us. And there's no, there's no argument about it. It should not be that way. Fair use should allow for a documentary to clearly use materials to further discussion on an art form or a cultural movement or you know, additional philosophies of, of life. So it's a bummer that that's the case, but it, you have to live in the real world. And-, and not to get too inside baseball, but I know there's this thing, errors and in emissions insurance, which exists in a lot of interest industries. E&O, it's in, you know, you, it's in journalism, it's a lot of places. And you have to get E&O insurance in order to put a film into distribution uh, because if you, don't have under, if you don't have an insurance policy that underwrites the risk of the people showing the film, they don't want it because then they're bearing the risk themselves. And I understand there is a legal clinic, is it at Stanford? I can put this in the show notes. That's working on fair use clearance and has underwriters that will work with them. Right. Stanford actually has a wonderful website. The Stanford, I think it's the Law, Science, and Technology. I don't remember offhand, but they have a wonderful sort of non-lawyer review of fair use and, and, uh, and guidelines and stuff. And so they're doing some wonderful work for, for creators. And there's, there's other institutions online that are, that are uh, sharing what they know. But exactly, e- and even E&O Insurance, to, to go back to your, what you're mm-hmm. talking about, E&O Insurance and underwriters, unless you can say that you have clearance or are very clearly using it under a fair use clause and you're pretty confident about it, your insurance will go up. So even on that front, it gets, it gets tricky. So um, I, I know that this is about as exciting as, as watching paint dry to talk about this, but it gets, <laughs> it gets really tricky critical. for a documentary yeah. filmmaker to do what they want to do and to distribute their art and get it out into the world without understanding this. And we've, we've read and talked to other filmmakers that said, hey, just on the sly, get your, get your material approved because it will ruin your life and ruin your film if you have to go to court or if you have to deal with this after your film has reached right, final Because this is the, the disproportionate. And the reason I bring this up, this comes up in other fields too. I think it's most prominent in yours because um, I could – a printer – uh, so I'm doing this book for the magazine and you know I, my printer asked for a reseller certificate so they don't, I don't have to pay sales tax since I'm selling it directly to end users and they asked for you know proof like credit and then a, a check like all this stuff. They never said we need your E&O insurance and I published a book with them and for all they know everything in it was pirated. You know that's on me. It's not on them. They're not going to get in trouble but there are other venues in which you could have issues and you need E&O or you need something like it because – 
you'd be restricted. Film is very particular because you, if you want to get into theaters or you want certain kinds of distribution arms like iTunes to carry it, you have to get through this. Uh, but I think there is a general re relevancy that because you can't clear things in advance and because many of the rights holders are multi-billion dollar multinational companies, you're stuck. Like you really have to do your work or you are going to be on the hook, as you say. You, it's a, such an asymmetric playing field, uh, the people you're contending oh, with. Yeah. And it's, it's the asymmetry that kills you because, uh, you know, Warner Brothers has 20 lawyers on staff that just deal with this day in and day out. And here are Fred and I as two filmmakers who are, you know, it's our first first rodeo, basically. And so it's very asymmetrical relationship. Well, so, th Absolutely. so this is why you went back. So this was an interesting stage as you you had identified an enormous amount of footage. And by the way, it was another clever thing you did. So uh, you did a second Kickstarter called The Final Push. And the big thing was raising money and you set a, a very nice minimum and then had stretch goals above it to obtain the clearance rights for things that you couldn't get from the rights holders who would allow you to use them. And I, there's there's two good things about this. One, on the Kickstarter side, not only did you exceed the goal, but you did the very smart thing, which was before it closed, you replaced practically the entire campaign with information about the film because you got the clearance rights. You didn't need to have all the clearance information up there as your advertisement. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah, we did do that. <laughs> but the other thing is... Well, was, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, it was a great thing where it was basically I – mean, we were nervous about doing a second Kickstarter of going back to the well essentially. But it was sort of a thing that we could put up to our supporters and say, look, this is what we want to do, but we need all this money to do it. Uh, if we don't raise it, we just won't have the sequence. So if you think the sequence with all the history and all the, the clips that we want to use, if you think that's worthwhile – then support us, you know, and it was as simple as that, where it was like, you know, this will be in the movie if we reach our goal, and if uh, if we don't reach our goal, it's it's out of the movie. It and was also the nice thing that you're offering for someone like me. I missed the first go round, and this time I was like, well, heck, I'd love them to get their clearance rights, but oh, I can support the film at this point too. I can be a backer and get the digital download early. I don't have to wait till it comes out and miss it, and I can you know support directly. So you gave me a position. To be a, a patron, uh, even if the, the specific purpose of it wasn't as critical to me. Right. And, and we, we told backers of the first Kickstarter, look, this is, not, this is not going out to you. You have already supported the film. This is for either new folks that haven't heard of the film or who missed the first Kickstarter or folks that are specifically interested in, in helping the film out in this way. But we didn't want anybody to feel put upon like, I already gave to you and now you're asking me again. And I think, thankfully, we actually ended up, Fred, and Mike, correct me on this, we actually ended up with more backers, the second, even though it was the, the amount was less, more backers the second time around than the I first. I can confirm that I'm looking at the web pages right now and you had 2,741 oh, yeah. okay. the second time around and 2,601 the first time around. So that was great. And one of the things you made clear, and I, I wrote about when I wrote about this for The Economist and I, I saw elsewhere, was uh, you were actually trying to raise a relatively small amount of money relative to the material you used. Did you get a lot of um, – seems like you got a lot of great response from the cartoonists and estates and other organizations that control rights. When you went out to say – I've forgotten her name. Charles uh, Sparky Schultz's uh, uh, widow. Oh, Jean, Jean, Jean Schultz. Schultz. Yeah. So Jean, you said – it sounds. I mean you have context. This is where it comes out. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Fred, you bring this knowledge of cinematography and how the industry works and the technical knowledge and the artistic knowledge. Dave, you have all these deep connections in the world and you are part of that world and you guys start doing the interview. So the word gets out. You go to Gene Schultz and some of these other – or Jim Davis for that matter, Garfield's creator, and say, hey, we'd like to include stuff. What was their response when you asked? They were well, the nice thing – oh, yeah, oh, they were just incredibly generous from every step of the way. The cartooning – you know, the community of cartoonists have been 
amazingly generous with not just their time but also with their their art for the most part they wanted us to succeed and they i think they wanted this movie as much as as we did maybe not but uh i think they really saw that we were serious in sort of making a a really heartfelt movie about a medium that doesn't get a lot of attention and hasn't gotten a lot of attention than it being comic strips like i can't think of another real documentary about the subject so they were great i mean jim davis just with his time alone you know we sat down with him for him you know what was essentially going to be like a a 30 to 40 minute interview and he ended up giving us uh, about two hours (laughs) of his time you know so just that was great and then when we came back to you know wanting to show their work and and do it in this in, in this sort of interesting way they they were super supportive for the most part, you know, in sort of giving us uh, access to their work. And Jeannie Schultz especially helped us to get access to all the uh, the peanut stuff that we wanted to show in the movie. It's, it's Charles Schultz seems like he's really – I mean he's like um, one of the underlying parts of the film. I feel like there's a sub – you know, like a – uh, because he was in the industry, he drew for 50-plus years, and because he helped – I've talked to so many cartoonists who Sparky was actually like a, a direct mentor or encouragement. There's one cartoonist I know, I won't mention by name, who he said, get out of the field. <laughs> <laughs> one of That's the great. Alternative cartoonists, not my friend Matt Boris, but everybody else – maybe he was right, I don't know. But uh, everybody else, he, he was such a direct influence in the field and encouraging and bringing artists up. There's a definite subtext in the film about his his – involvement in, in kind of making what modern cartooning uh, comic uh, artists became. Yeah, I don't think you can talk about comic strips without talking about Peanuts and Charles Schultz. He, his influence is incalculable uh, on generations of cartoonists. I and mean, you've got to show so much of his work is, is the thing. I mean, uh, you know, I, you, no one could estimate this exactly, but you were looking to raise about thirty-five grand for the clearance rights from things like you know NBC and there were university archives where I bet they can't give you the rights because they're obliged to do – cost recovery and just little bits and pieces, some of it more than others. But the rights that you got essentially given to you because of the love these people have for cartooning seemed to me like like a million dollars, two million dollars, like an uncalculably large amount of rights were you to have to go out and pay for them one at a time. Oh, yeah. And and we found that again and again with, with virtually every living cartoonist is that, as Fred was saying, they were – excited that this film which really should have been made 20 years ago we were surprised that a, a, a you know an art form that's had this much impact on american and canadian culture especially hasn't had a documentary on it aside from like a robert crumb kind of documentary but they were so excited that it was getting made and were so generous with their material and it was really like you said only when we got into major corporations which exist for purposes other than and than uh, you know an artist might and also estates uh, where licensing fees came in. But everybody else from Jim Davis to, to the Schultz family to everyone from Harka Vagrant to Foxtrot to For Better, For Worse to Bizarro <laughs> was so kind in, in letting us use uh, any art that we asked them. And it was, it was a very, kind, very big kindness on their part. I think it just speaks to the, the, the joy-filled medium that comics are, that it's it's more like the people involved in it are are some of the nicest most generous people i've encountered you know from any art form and i i don't know if that's just because of what they do every day which is really to impart a sense of joy you know every day to to their readers that maybe that's just sort of the personality that the medium 
cultivates are these just really cool people. Well, there's so there's one last part of this thing. This is the meta story part is that this film would never have been possible before innovations of the last couple of years to distribute as widely as you are going to be able to do it. And uh and one of these pieces is VHX and um uh I don't have to spell it out. That's its name. And um not S but VHX. <laughs> and they I first heard about them during XOXO 2012 because the folks from uh Indie Game the movie who have been uh, two-time guests on this show, uh they uh they released the film. They were, I think, one of the, the first film to be released publicly through VHX as a platform. And that's now going back into 2012. And it's matured, it sounds like, what they're offering. Uh, I just saw a press release the other day that I think they're adding uh, – even instead of having to go to their site, you can embed it on your own site now. Like there's another level of bringing it closer to you as a filmmaker to distribute your film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, we really like the technology and the people uh, behind it at uh, VHX, and so it's one of the. It's actually one of the, the platforms we're most excited to go through. One, one of the big things we're going to do on April first, yeah. the first oh, day yeah, that yeah. the film releases, is we're going to go um, solely through iTunes, and um, this is in part. Um, following in the footsteps of friends of ours, cartoonist Ryan North of Dinosaur Comics and David Malky of Wondermark had a fantastic book called Machine of Death, which was a, a series of short fiction stories about a machine that could predict your death in, in a single cryptic sentence. Um, anyway, it was a collection of very wonderful Twilight Zone stories and couldn't find a publisher, so they put it out on Amazon themselves. And as part of a, for lack of a better phrase, a marketing gimmick, they said, we're going to become number one on Amazon for one day. And so they got everybody in, uh, in, in web comics to employ their social media, and sure enough, they did it. They got number one. They beat out uh, Glenn Beck's oh, book yeah. on the day that it launched. <laughs> and then as a result of a sort of snowballing effect, they stayed at number one, I think, for two or three days and stayed in the top 25 for weeks. So it's something we'd like to do with the film with iTunes. We're going to try to shoot for number one for one day and see if we can beat out major studios without a distributor, without a studio, without a press agent, without anything, just by the sheer love and support of the fans, if we can do it. What's Um, the cost on iTunes? Uh, the cost on iTunes is we're, we're trying to make it consistent across mm-hmm. all platforms. So it's fourteen ninety nine to own, and then there'll be a rental fee, which I think will be like a third of that, if not less. That's great. And this is and everything. So as we're recording this, this is be, this is well ahead of April first. It should air. People should be listening to this. I think five days ahead or four days ahead. And if they pre-order, they go there now. The pre-order counts towards your day one total, right? It does, actually, and that's one of the neat things. Um, so when we first – and this is, gives us hope as to the fact that we might be able to do it when, as far as reaching that goal. When we first put it up on pre-orders, we shot to number six documentaries just on mm. pre-orders, which apparently was was kind of unheard of, uh, we heard back through iTunes. So we're we're pretty excited about the possibility of being able to do it. And so any orders on or before April 1st through iTunes – and you can get the link at strippedfilm.com for iTunes. Counts towards us shooting for that goal. And then the next day, we're going to go, like you said, onto VHX, which we think is a fantastic DRM-free platform. And then Google Play and also through DRM-free DVDs that will be available. So all that happens the next day. But for the first day, we're just shooting for iTunes. That's great. I mean, because iTunes, you know, right, there is the DRM issue. They don't distribute films without DRM. All the music is now. But a lot of people, that's the platform. And I buy stuff on it. I have movies on it. I sometimes do rentals with it. It's, I'm already locked into an Apple ecosystem. So the DRM, I wish it wasn't there, but it hasn't affected my ability to 
watch in every device because all my devices work with Apple Stop. <laughs> so like, right. That's true right. with me too. Well, yeah, right. well, like Amazon. Like I don't like the Kindle lock-in. However, I can use the Kindle software or devices and everything. So hasn't hasn't bugged me yet. But yeah, so DH. But you go to VHX. Like that's part of their model. Is you, you were talking earlier. I wonder if you expand just a tiny bit about um, the extras part. Is uh, so VHX oh, yeah. is a delivery platform. So iTunes is is more like a movie sales platform, and they they have an ecosystem. So I can buy a movie. I can rent a movie. VHX is is also the same thing. But they're they're a little closer to you, right? Like iTunes is its own thing, and and you're almost wholesaling your product to iTunes. With VHX, they're acting as like a thin layer distributor for you, but they're working on your behalf. Yeah, they're basically a skin that goes over your site, so you're buying it right off of your website. Mm. And they've just announced that you know anybody can sort of do this. It's it's you know it, everybody's going to have the ability to go through VHX. And what's really exciting to be a filmmaker now is that it allows to really expand your film out beyond the boundaries of the frame, right? So like we have all these great interviews, you know, with Jim Davis, with Scott McCloud, you know, you name it, but we're only, you know, we only use pieces of them in the movie. What VHX allows you to do is now we can put up the entire, you know, hour and a half or two hour interview with Scott McCloud and somebody can download that in addition to the movie and really expand the scope of what the film can do. I mean the film sort of becomes this living, breathing thing that, that takes shape outside of just the confines of, of its eighty five minute running time. You know, and, and that's only possible now. Like a filmmaker could not have done that, you know, previous to Right now, in places like VHX, and so this this brings that last bit of DVD ness to the online world. Yes, you know it makes the extras even almost infinite now. Like there's no telling how much material you can actually add to the movie. Indie game was a great you know outlier in terms of us looking at people that have done this before, because that's a great film in and of itself, but then you look at all the extra stuff that they've released online, and it really adds to the discussion and continues the conversation that they start in the movie. I have their deluxe DVD set, and I haven't even gotten through that because there's so much more interesting stuff on it. Yeah, and what's what's great about VHX is they sort of, and, and it's a very simple technological trick that to, to do or to employ, but VHX allows you to sort of make very easy bundles of, oh, I'd like to film, and I'd like the director's commentary, and I'd like this interview, and those extra 30 minutes, and this uh, deleted scene, and, and you can sort of bundle it together in packages, and it makes it really nice for us as, as filmmakers and for the audience to say, oh, I'd like this package, that package, whatever is right mm-hmm. for you, um, which is in some ways even more empowering than a traditional DVD or Blu-ray pack because you can, you can really customize it. So we're excited about that to see what people will respond to because it also means in some ways we can continue the conversation. Like if Burke Breathed after seeing the film of Bloom County says, you know what, I'm, I feel bad that I, that I didn't do an interview. Let's, let's do one now. We could put that up on VHX as part of the package. And so it keeps the project going in some respects. Well, uh, so folks are part of the iTunes ecosystem, and they're comfortable buying films in that. You should go and pre-order this movie today, because it's just, this is what I said about Linotype the movie, which I, I backed through both iterations and even helped bring to Seattle. Indie game, like a lot of these films that are coming up from the Kickstarter side, people, the, you folks as filmmakers are coming here both to get support and to get, you know, money, but to also find an audience that wants it. And these films have so much heart. You know, who would think a movie about Linotype typesetting equipment would move you? And it's <laughs> it's really about people. This is really about love. Your movie is about love. And um, and I think it's one of the defining aspects of films that come through Kickstarter 
the, most of the ones I've seen, they have a, a, a story that might be so quirky at the top that it's not going to get made, even though it should, like yours. But it's, um, it's, it's really a great story. You have a filmmaking arc in it. It's not just a bunch of interviews. You've got a story that's deeply told and from the heart. So everyone should go to iTunes who's part of that. Or if you're not part of that thing, April 2nd, VHX.com. Go there and you can get your DRM free uh, download too. And guys, thanks for talking about it. There's so many issues and I'm, I'm going to look forward. Uh, we won't know, so I can't do the artificial future. We won't know when this aired, how it's done, but I'll post an update on April 1st and, and see if you guys got to number one. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be exciting to see if we get there. And, and it, as stupid as it sounds, it's kind of fun to even try. I mean, I know that sounds like a neat, naive kid saying it, but it's kind of fun to even see if an indie, a super indie film could do it. So uh, we, we got our fingers well, crossed. Well, nice, part of, nice yeah. thing of being in the world of Kickstarter <laughs> is Kickstarter itself has a big reach, and they like to support the films. They've been very supportive, you know, at Sundance and, and other things. So when you go out for this, they're, they're gonna, as you get towards April 1st, I imagine Kickstarter, with its account with hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter and its newsletters and so forth, they might give it a little push, too. I wouldn't be surprised. No, that'd be lovely of them. Yeah, it's um, between between the different cartoonists that have very kindly lent their support to the film. We're hoping that, that we can find enough of an audience online uh, between all these different comics lovers. So, anyway, the, it's the the signs are optimistic, but we're not counting any chickens. It's a very right. hard, uh, very hard mountain to climb. I've- I think our main competition, like our Glenn Beck, is uh, Justin Bieber, whose who's documentary comes, comes out around the same time. So, so a vote for us is a vote against Justin Bieber. You can look at it that way. <laughs> well, David, but we'll see. David, Fred, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank, thank you for, you having, so us. for having us. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.